0: For your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, December 16th, 2015. There is only one week left of broadcasting for Fighting for the Faith in the year 2015. we we'll be taking the Christmas holiday off. Just want to let you know now. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our, our Bibles you know, look at God's Word in context, use proper hermeneutics, sound exegesis, in order to figure out if the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles, apostolettes, and so-called vision-casting leaders are rightly handling God's Word, or if they're twisting it, taking it out of context, inventing theologies and telling us stuff that we really shouldn't be listening to instead of teaching sound biblical historic Orthodox Christian doctrine and theology. Yeah, that's kind of the problem that's out there. And uh, one of the ways you learn how to employ good biblical discernment is learning how to listen to good stuff. And we have been listening to a series of uh, lessons delivered by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church at Capistrano Beach, California, as he's been working his way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is just stellar stuff. Really good stuff. Fantastic set of lectures. So we're up to uh, lecture number five, I think, in the series. So let's get to it. Without any further ado, here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde in his next installment on his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes.
1: Good morning, everyone. So where we left off in Ecclesiastes is an extremely important part, and it doesn't behoove us to move too quickly through this, so I really don't intend to get that far today, and that's okay. There are other sections in Ecclesiastes that are a little more straightforward, and we'll be able to move them more quick through them more quickly. But I want to take our time, because here at the end of Chapter 2 and uh, the beginning of Chapter 3, in some ways we have the close of a unit. Remember, way back in Chapter 1, verse 1, Chapter 1, verse 2, the all is vanity, that's sort of the starting point, and then the reason for that, that he gives, are the cycles, right, the pointless cycles of generations, the pointless cycles of the sun, the pointless circuits of the wind and water, um, the all is vanity, uh, humanity is vain, and uh, creation is vain, okay. Now, we're going to end uh, a section, if you will, in chapter 3 with the famous poem, There's uh, For Everything There Is a Season and a Time for Everything Under Heaven. What we're going to see here is a repetition of the cycles. So, what Ecclesiastes has done structurally is it's taken us in one big cycle. From cycles and everything wrong, that's wrong with the toils under the sun... Uh, some of what's right, but even what's right isn't good enough, and we finally come all the way back to the idea of cycles, and then, as I mentioned at the end of last week, all of a sudden, we jettison off in a rambling, almost disconnected, almost pointless sort of arrangement and string of themes, which also imitates life, and at the end, we get to a final discussion Uh, once again, of the all is vanity, which takes us all the way back to the beginning. So, structurally, chapters 1 through 3, you have a great big cycle, then you have us loop off into this wandering, meandering path that no one knows where it's going or why it's going there, and it ends in a great big cycle. So Ecclesiastes imitates life, and its message and its content are deeply connected, Now, what's so important about this latter part of chapter 2 that we looked at uh, last week is it really is the crescendo of this opening uh, part, this chapter 1 through chapter 3, this small cycle that we see. It's the crescendo because he has looked at uh, wisdom, he's looked at pleasure, He's looked at greatness. He's looked at these as the chief toils that men engage themselves in. And he's seen them as all incapable of answering the question, what is the point, what is the meaning, what is the purpose? As good as wisdom is, as good as pleasures are, as good as greatness can be, it's not good enough. None of these things is good enough to answer man's deepest questions, man's deepest longings. And all of these are subjected to futility, limitation, etc. Okay. Now, what this does is, in verse 18, causes him to say, chapter 2, verse 18, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun. So, we have a summary statement. And, as this progresses on to verse 20, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Hatred of life and despair, which in Ecclesiastes means you've reached not the bottom, but the top. <laughs> because in Ecclesiastes, that's the point. The point is taking an honest look at the world in its current state and saying, if this is it, it kind of sucks. Now again, what we're doing biblically is we're painting the silhouette for Christ who promises to bring a new creation, a new world, a new ordering to all things. Behold, I make all things new. So again, the art and the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to show you that all the things under the sun that you see with your eye, that you experience in your life, it's good insofar as it's good, but don't make it an idol because it ends and God has much better for you in Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, then, the high point of Ecclesiastes is when you have come with Solomon in wisdom to realize that all the toils, good as they may be, are in the end vanity, meaningless, incapable of filling you. So that's what I meant uh, or mean when I say the dignity of despair. You've reached the high point and a hatred of all the pursuits, all the toils. In fact, going back to verse 17 of chapter 2, a hatred of life, which sounds so anti-Christian, and yet it is the epitome of Christianity. As Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life will gain it. So here we are engaged in the business of hating life, hating the toils, and despairing of it all. Why? So that when Christ comes and speaks to us, we may gain him and all that matters. Right? In fact, gain back our life. In fact, gain back the world as God intends it. Alright. Now, again, Ecclesiastes isn't engaged in uh, dialogue with God. In fact, God is silent. And the God of that Ecclesiastes speaks of is a God that is uh, graspable apart from divine revelation. That is, it's a God. It's God as you come to know Him and understand Him as He is under the sun. In other words, to know the God of this latter part of Chapter Two of Ecclesiastes, you just need your reason and your senses, experience, and a healthy dose of honesty. And in fact, you see something very shocking. There is, with with Solomon having his back up against the wall and hatred of life and hatred of the toils in despair, he then has nowhere to turn to but God. And as he turns to God and reflects on God, does he find that reflection satisfying? No. No. And this begins a theme that will repeat at least once more in major form, perhaps several times more, that religion itself as a toil is also subject to vanity. Now, let's take a look at this a little closer, and you can see what I mean from the text itself. Look at 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity, empty, meaningless, purposeless. Verse 24, there is nothing better Note, he doesn't say, this is super, this is the peak, this is the epitome, this is great. He says, there's nothing better. Jeremy, how do you like the spaghetti? Well, there's nothing better around here. (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly praise, okay? Not exactly praise. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, don't mistake that as praise. So many commentators, you know, that happy, clappy Christians are going to write happy clappiness all over this, and, ooh, isn't it great? God gives us gifts and wants us to enjoy. Amen. That's sort of not the point (laughs) at all. There's nothing better than this, which is uh, not exactly a compliment. There's nothing better than that a person should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's it. That's not very good. And in fact, you can't help but note that in this reflection here in verse 24, look just a few lines earlier in verse 18. Here in 24, he says, find enjoyment in his toil. Verse 18, I hated all my toil. Okay? So there's nothing better than to find joy in it. But even as you're finding joy in it, you're going to find hatred in it. Because as you find the joy, you're going to find that the joy isn't the sort that fills you. It leaves you empty. It leaves you meaningless. It leaves you looking for more. That's how it is with all the pursuits. You go looking for wisdom and you don't finally say, aha, that's it, I've arrived. I've got my degree. I'll never open up another book again. That person's not wise. That person's the biggest fool imaginable. So wisdom always leaves you wanting more. Pleasure. You pursue the pleasures. Again, not in a pagan, hedonistic, knee cave man, sex, food, mm, uh, sort of way, but you pursue it the way of Solomon. You pursue pleasure in the way of wisdom, moderation, sophistication, pleasure. After you've had your wonderful meal, you're satisfied, you've kicked back, you've got the toothpick going through your teeth, you're good until when? <laughs> yeah, if you're 18, 10 minutes later, If <laughs> you're the rest of us the next day. Okay? You're only satisfied for a time. In other words, you're always wanting more. So as good as the toil, as good as the toil for wisdom or pleasure may be, you always want more than what they give. So in the end, you start to hate them, especially you start to hate them when they seem to promise to fulfill you time and again, and they don't. Or other people seem to be fulfilled by them when really they're not. So it is for wisdom, so it is for pleasure and greatness, as we've seen, the building of monuments, the establishment of society, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, All of that, fulfilling and good as it may be, ultimately passes away, ultimately fades and fails, is handed on to the next generation that may be worthless and foolish. Okay, And it has its limitations and leaves you looking for more as well. And now here, stunningly, shockingly, Uh, anti-American Christianly, (laughs) Um, while I'm inventing words, is this, that God himself, as perceived under the sun, as perceived by human reason, leaves you unfulfilled, wanting more. And here's Solomon's reasoning. There is nothing better, verse 24, for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. So what does God give? Good, but pretty darn minor good. He gives us these toils. He gives us wisdom and pleasure and greatness and religion, and they're good insofar as they're good, but ultimately they leave us empty. Therefore, what God gives ultimately leaves us empty. And the accusation, so to speak, deepens. Verse 25, For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Of course, the answer is no one. So let's give credit where credit's due. But how fulfilling is the eating and the enjoyment? Not ultimately fulfilling. And then verse 26, Shocking. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is great. Praise be to God. No, (laughs) this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon happy with the God that his reason gives him, unsatisfied and rightfully so now here 's the point, as we covered a little bit last week. For the one who pleases him, God has give, uh, to, the, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, wait a minute what 's the Bible teach us? How many sinners are there? Yeah, we have all sinned and fallen short of the. Gr- so, what is this business? If we're all sinners, then what is this business that to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom? We're all sinners. Why does God choose one sinner to have these blessings over another? He does what pleases him. Is that fair? Is that just? Is that satisfying? Solomon says, no, it's vanity. It's empty, it's purposeless, it's pointless, it's not right. And Solomon isn't alone in this. In fact, if you read the, the Psalms, you'll see this repeatedly. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 73. I want you to see this just so that you know I'm not misreading uh, Ecclesiastes here but that you'll see this is a theme common to the Scriptures, and indeed even written in the hymnody of Israel. Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph, one of David's friends. Solomon was David's son. So it may well be that Solomon was paying attention and learning something here. If you look at Psalm 73, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, here's my statement of faith, statement of belief. Truly God is good to Israel, and he's good to those who are pure in heart. That's my statement of faith. Now, what conflicts with that? My experience, what I see with my eyes. Because what I see with my eyes is that God blesses the arrogant and the wicked with prosperity. And that is why my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. In other words, I almost lost my faith in God. Because what I learned about him in his word and what I experience in the world are irreconcilable. What I learn about God in the word is that he is good to Israel, good to those who are pure in heart, and what I see with my eye is that he is good to those who are arrogant and wicked. And the pure in heart all too often suffer. Okay, hey, he goes on with his criticism of the arrogant and the wicked in verse four of Psalm 73, "For they have no pangs until death. In other words, their life is easy. God doesn't afflict them. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Think of the rich man in Lazarus, right? He had no pangs until death. the rich man. Lazarus' life was full of nothing but pangs until death. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Could you imagine us chanting this? (laughs) Loftily they threaten oppression. Probably this isn't in the hymnal. Does anyone have a Lutheran service book in here? (laughs) Probably one of the exiled, forbidden psalms. Verse 9, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain, vanity. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What good was my self-sacrifice? What good were my ethics? What good did it do me to try hard to please God, to love Him and love my neighbor? All vanity. All in vain. Why? Because God curses me and those who pay him no attention, he blesses all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, "I will speak thus, I would have I would have betrayed the generation of your children, which probably means. The psalmist kept his mouth shut about all this stuff because he didn't want to scandalize people. They'd worry he wasn't converted. Verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Who talks that way? Solomon, with knowledge, and the pursuit of knowledge is weariness and vexation. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Now what did he get in the sanctuary of God? Yes, the word, the word and revelation. Prior to this, he's got God under the sun, right? He's got God as you see him with your eyes and experience him with your reason. And he's not going to pull any punches. He's not going to be piously dishonest. Politely deceitful. He's going to pull no punches. He's going to say it how it is. Only when he goes into the sanctuary of God and gets revelation that enlightens his heart and his mind beyond what they have of their own natural power does he understand. It seemed to me a wearisome task until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God Then I discern their end. Truly you, that is God, truly you, God, set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. They've got a great big house. They've got everything, but it's all built on the sand. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Wealth, prosperity, all of it, gone in an instant. You've got people in, uh, when the stock market crashed who were rich beyond compare that morning. By the afternoon, they were doing what? Jumping out the windows. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. That's the way of his doing theology, by the way, when he does theology by his eye and by his reason. He says, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. In other words, man has to have the revelation of God, or else his wisdom is nothing but brutish and ignorant and as a beast. Now, Interestingly, Solomon is going to bring this point out uh, himself. He is going to say at the end of chapter 3, for all is uh," at the wrong place, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So without God's divine revelation... We simply look at things as they are, then we think like beasts, and in fact, we conclude that we are beasts. Sort of like Darwinian evolution. Sort of like this whole thing's become encapsulated within our very culture, and now this is the narrative. What we tell ourselves is true. We are beasts. Just continue with, with Psalm 73 because I want you to get the full resolution here. Okay. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Now that's what? In the midst of being afflicted, of being impoverished, of having the troubles of the world heaped upon his head, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. That's why Paul, when he uh, does the whole um, can sickness or, or, uh, or death or anything else in all creation separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus argument, the answer is no, no. And as he lists all the troubles and afflictions that man goes through, he says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now the key word there is in. Because false Christianity says when God saves you from these things, then you are more than conquerors. But that's not what Paul says. In all these things, you are more than conquerors through him who gives you strength. Like Paul himself experiences when he prays that God would remove the thorn in the flesh, whatever that is, and he prays three times and God says no. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in
0: weakness. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's just wonderful teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes from Pastor Jeremy Rody Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
1: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
2: And now, Max Holliday's Cage here proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Now, Mildred, I have some very important information to show you in this next video. It's going to give you the tools necessary to know if you're hearing directly from God. But anyways, Dr. Barbie, we are going to talk today about symbols. Yes,
3: I like Because symbols.
2: oftentimes God speaks in symbols. So outside of symbols, what are some of the ways that God speaks to his people?
4: Well, major ways through His Word, but His Holy Spirit speaks to us and communicates to it through a symbolic language, through even signposts on the highways, through music, through the dance, through nature. The other day I was at your home, and a dove kept flying by the window. And to me, it was the Holy Spirit bringing messages through the dove appearing, which represents the Holy Spirit.
2: So as you can see, Mildred, God talks to us in many, many, many ways in everyday life, which is why... I got you this. A Cracker Jack prize? Yes. I mean, no. Do you have any idea how many box tops I had to send in for this thing? Um, no. It was a lot. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what you see before you is, in fact, your very own Holy Spirit decoder ring.
4: What does it do?
2: What doesn't it do? When I turn it on, it has the ability to warn you when the Holy Spirit is trying to give you an important message. Like what? I'll show you. We know that the Holy Spirit can talk to us in all kinds of ways. He could even be trying to send me a message through this radio right now. Hold on, let me change the station. now. <laughs> Let me help you turn on the ring. I have a great idea. Why don't
4: you take it out
2: for a test drive? Aren't you
4: gonna come with me?
2: <laughs> you know I can't leave. Being under house arrest is so much fun. If I were to leave my house for more than 20 seconds then the cops would show up and tase me again. And who wants that? Now, here's how the ring works. When it beeps like this, that means that there's a sign that you need to see in the area around you.
4: Um, Mr. Sunshine, when the ring goes off, how am I going to know what the message is?
2: Trust me, you'll know. It'll be so obvious that you won't miss it. And on top of that, the ring will make this sound when you've guessed it correctly. It couldn't be simpler. You are now free to... Leave. Uh,
4: I'm really sorry to have to bother you at your house. They told me that these sessions are a part of the pastor's vision, and that if I don't go, it will be a sin against
2: God. You think that somebody under house arrest would be free from any and all ministerial obligations, but no! I guess that would make too much sense.
4: I'm sorry that I cause you so much pain.
2: It's all your... I mean, not your fault.
3: <laughs>
2: my, my, look at the sun. It's time for you to go. Have fun with the decoder ring!
4: I wonder when this is gonna go off. I see a McDonald's, I see a sign twirler dressed up as a hot dog, and I see the town park. You want me to go to the park? Okay. a dog eating grass. His owner is picking up the poop and there's a bird flying towards the road. Is the bird a message? Ah. Ah. The little bird just got hit by the truck. I think I get the message. All I see now is a couple having a picnic by the pond.
5: You are such a
2: jerk!
4: I think they just broke up. Um, there's a tetherball court. But there's no tetherball or rope. It's just a pole. I I don't see any kind of message here. I think you're broken. I'm going to take you off my finger now. Oh no, it's stuck. I'm going to have to go get some soap from the bathroom.
2: I can't let you do that, Mildred.
4: Oh dear, it's become self-aware.
2: Mildred, you and I are bonded as one. I am an instrument here to reveal his secrets to you. I will deliver his messages to you for it is his will. You
6: should know them. We are going to be together... Forever. Ha, 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 ha,
1: Every summer for the past 15 years, youth have been immersed in the waters of their baptism at Higher Things conferences. On January 2nd, we invite college students and young adults to the campus of Concordia University, Chicago for an evening spent drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This unique Higher Things Lutheran Unconference will begin with a service of vespers and end with evening prayer. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will take the stage for just 20 minutes each. A sit-down dinner will be provided with a Q&A session with a speaker panel. Registration is just $100 per person. Go to higherthings.org for more
5: information.
0: That's higherthings.org Warning! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if your pastor never actually teaches the Bible with any depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us, that's right, it's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And look right there on the page. You can see them all over the place. It's our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. the yeah, This is join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up and picking your rank. That's right. You can pick your rank. And the lowest rank is Powder Monkey. And that's a commitment of $9.95 every month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95. Master Gunner at $49.95. And Quartermaster at $99.95. And we're currently looking for the equivalent of 600 new powder monkeys so that we can afford to, uh, you know, kind of bring out phase two of the uh, the new Pirate Christian website. And so, yeah, you've seen the update. You've seen, you know, kind of the general direction that we're heading, and we're constantly trying to improve it and expand our offering in the way in which we serve the body of Christ and you by partnering with us makes it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing as well as roll out the next things that we would like to do by being able to hire some more people to work with us on our you know daily cruise so that we can you know continue to uh, get the word out about Christ and him crucified for our sins now if If you'd like to join our crew, again, FightingForTheFaith.com, click on Join Our Crew, pick your rank and join our crew. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could by uh, clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you, truly thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, now here is the balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes from Pastor Jeremy Rhodey. Here we go.
1: See, so when we are weak and afflicted, then the Lord may be strong in us and indeed be with us. In all these things we are more than conquerors, or as Asaph says, nevertheless, despite all these things befalling me, all these things that I am in and suffering in, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. That is, when I die, I'll be with you. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's a little different perspective, isn't it? than American Christianity, where what's the best part of dying? It's a Reunion of the people you love, and then it's Disneyland for adults or something. But look at the psalmist's reflection, how different it is. It's not all about the stuff. It's not even about our loved ones. Whom have I in heaven but you? Heaven is having God. Jesus says the same, doesn't he? This is eternal life. To believe in the Father and the one whom he has sent eternal life is in a place, relationship. Possess the Father and the Son, you possess something even greater than the heavens and the earth, even greater than all creation. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Which would be a wonderful way of summarizing Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is going to methodically, systematically show us that nothing on earth will fulfill our desires or is worthy of our desire, but only the Lord himself. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I hate life and I hate earth. I love you. 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, the rich, the wealthy, the successful, the ones that it appears to our eyes that God has blessed, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. This is the resolution. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So the lesson of Psalm 73 is simply this. Would you rather be rich and godless or poor and have God with you? And in Ecclesiastes, what his task is, is to impoverish you. To take everything that you have and love away from you so that you are truly poor, so that you can receive Jesus and his blessing. Blessed are the poor, says in Luke Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says in Matthew. You can be poor and poor of spirit, even if you're an American and wealthy comparatively to the rest of the nation, because why? You realize that these things aren't your possessions. These things aren't anything compared to God. All right, so do you see how Psalm 73 is right in accord with what we've seen in Ecclesiastes so far? All right, any questions or comments before we continue (laughs) along? Hopefully I haven't confused everyone. Okay, let's move on a little further then. Back to Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter <clears throat> 2. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh question up here. Sorry, Jim. Right up here, Estella. Uh,
7: with all these... Uh, Knowledge and we experience all this pain, and God is telling us that you know to hold on to Him. But our attitude is always going to be like how Solomon feels that struggling constantly with this meaning, meaningless, but in the same time. Uh, our needs are also, you know, big, and our body or our mind are trying to, you know, to pursue those meaningless, you know, things and idols or whatever, it's, it's going to be always a constant struggle.
1: Until you die.
7: Until we die? Yeah,
1: until we die, it's a constant struggle. It it mirrors and in some ways overlaps with the fact that until we die, there's the sinful flesh within us and we're constantly at war with ourselves. And we spend our whole life confessing against ourselves. I'm this way, and I don't want to be this way. um, Until who will save us from this body of death? Paul says, I thank God through Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, he will deliver us. And so also he will deliver us from this tension we experience. And I think that the tension is good. You know, as soon as you deny the tension that we are simul justus at the same time sinner and saint, as soon as you deny that tension, it's gotten screwed up and distorted. It hasn't. it? You have to hold that tension. The same thing is true with the message of Ecclesiastes. You have to hold the tension of there, this world is meaningless and vain. And you can't let anyone lie and tell you it's not. You can't lie to yourself. It's meaningless and vain, but at the same time, paradoxically, it's completely redeemed, as are you. And Christ Jesus, as we'll see, has done something new under under the sun, the only thing or the first thing new under the sun. And uh, even as we look at this fallen world, we see now reflections of that, whereas before we saw only despair. So I think in the same way we keep the tension between law and gospel, between sinner and saint, we hold the tension between meaninglessness and meaning, vanity or pointlessness, and the ultimate point and purpose that God has in mind. And we only screw up when we let go of one or the other. And I would, I would argue uh, that American Christianity, by and large, has tried to let go of the idea that it is meaningless and vain and we've tried to reconcile these two things god and all the stuff whereas we ought to see them paradoxically good only in so far as they're good but ultimately meaningless ultimately only a void that can be filled by christ Yes sir
5: um two questions. Uh, first, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 2.24. I don't have anything on, on Psalm uh, 73, uh, but on Ecclesiastes 2.24, um, he says, this also is from the hand of God. What does the this refer to? Is that referring just to the fact that there's nothing better for a person than they should eat and drink and find enjoyment? Or does it refer to the fact that that's hateful and it's the best we can do? Because early on, earlier on, he said, it's this. I hate it, and now he's saying this is the best I can do. So what does this refer to, both of those or just to the latter one? I
1: think it's to the simple referent, although you know, the more complex, I think, is also true. I just, I just think exegetically the text is saying what is from the hand of God specifically is that a man eat and drink and find enjoyment, but that's it. So it's a blessing, but it's a blessing subject to futility.
5: Just a limited blessing, mm-hmm. not the fact that it's actually kind of a curse. Was all, right. I was just wondering. Is it, well, is no, it, I think, I
1: mean, I think yeah. that that's implied there. Also, the hand of the Lord. What is one of the idiomatic, idiomatic ways that the Old Testament talks about God's curse being upon someone? Call it the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me. The hand of the Lord, Lord was upon Job. Um, that's an idiot. So I think that there's probably a play on that concept. That the God available to us under the sun, by our sight, by our human reason, is a God who blesses and curses, and even in the blessing, enjoy it for what it is. But there's a limitation, a futility, a curse already written into that by God. You know, so it's like it's like as we reflect on, "Give us this day our daily bread." We recognize, as Luther says, or we realize that God gives daily bread to everyone, even to the good and evil alike. What good is that daily bread? A lot of good. Without it, you die. But what good is that daily bread if he gives it to the good and wicked alike? Very limited. What good is that daily bread if ultimately we die no different than the wicked? Limited. So I think that that's the sense of that. He wants to give credit where credit's due, and yet state the limitation or the futility that God's written into that blessing. Does that sort of answer question one? That
5: answers question one. All right. Let me ask. Can I ask question two? Or Alice looks like she wants to ask a question. I'll give it to Alice. So she... yeah. Okay.
6: Because it's on yes, the s- share. it's on the same topic, and then I'll hand it back to him. Where it says, "There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil," you know, we've always been taught that man is happy when he toils and finds. You are (laughs) Monday morning. Oh yeah, that's
1: that's what I teach.
6: (laughs) I don't really mean it. Um, But that's from God. God has given us to work the earth. Yeah, that's that's His gift to us. Right. But if we hold on to that too tight, or even if we don't, it too is futility. I mean, it's just something to keep us occupied, I would think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. And there's a lot of good and benefit to toiling. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to see its limitations. But in the end,
6: it's nothing.
1: Right. Right. And I, and I also agree with you that uh, a man without toil becomes a miserable, miserable man very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it sounds nice to be out of work, but ask somebody who's out of work if they'd rather be out of work or not. Not just for the money, but for the work. Yeah, exactly. To have something to do. Sometimes people, when they retire, go through a crisis because they feel all of a sudden exceedingly the meaninglessness or purposelessness of their existence. Now what? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, back to
5: Dale. I should point out, Jim just just mentioned to me that uh, that toil is the curse of the fall. Right, that was what what we were cursed with when we fell—that we would have to work. So yeah. it, it is a like you say a limited a limited blessing. In fact, well, it's a blessing and it's a curse, I guess. Um, but now uh, the second one is this this bit about uh, how the one who pleases God will get the stuff from the ones who are sinners uh can you elaborate on that a bit more it seems like a strange thing to say after everything else he said it's like oh well yeah because but if you please god you know everybody else is going to work for you You, you're going to get their stuff um and he but he said and then finally to say this is vanity and a striving after the wood i I almost want to wonder was he actually rejecting some some view that maybe some people had or was this Was he actually putting this forward as the truth, that the one who pleases God will get the stuff from the people who, the sinner who has to gather and collect for him?
1: Very simply, I think he's putting it forward as true, as a general truth, and he doesn't like it one bit. It's generally true that this is the way the world works, That is, God is fickle, whoever pleases him prospers.
5: Not necessarily, those are not necessarily uh, good people
1: right right just the, who pleases god the mexican
5: god. drug lord apparently is pleased by god apparently right it pleases right. god to exactly. give him
1: stuff exactly exactly okay. yeah who are the people okay. most pleasing to god look up on the hills and and if you ask them they'll probably tell you that they are
7: <laughs>
1: now now the way that the church of course has embraced and adopted this is in prosperity theology so that the pastors say we are the ones who have pleased god Therefore, give us your wealth. No, well, they don't say it that crassly. We are the ones that have pleased God. That's why we're so wealthy and deserving of this wealth. God is making sinners to serve us, and we want to bring you into this as well. You should be, God, you should be uh, pleasing to God as well, and you should also reap some of the fruits, and the rest of the world should serve you just as you serve us. It's really the backbone of the prosperity gospel. Now, Solomon didn't have that in mind, obviously, but the dynamic is the same. And I think Solomon's saying, very simply, this is the way it is, and it's vanity. It's terrible. It's wretchedness.
3: Even though there's a foundational uh, knowledge that we're all sinners, he seems to be distinguishing between two groups of people, those who please him, but to the sinner, opposite, he's given, you know, to the one who pleases him, he's given wisdom, knowledge, and joy, which you wouldn't think would be a reward for a sinner, unbeliever, you know. And, but to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only material things in darkness. Um, and then he says only to give the person in darkness who's collecting and gathering to give their things to the one who pleases God. He's making two groups oppose each other the sinner and the one who pleases him. So it sounds like a believer would be the wisdom and knowledge and joy, not just another sinner.
1: Mm -hmm. And some have tried to take that read on it. (laughs) The problem is, how many believers do you know for whom this is true? Or how do you reconcile Psalm 73 and Asaph? Right? Is it his experience? That the good, that the believers, that the children of Israel are the ones who are prospering?
3: Well, is prosperity, wisdom, knowledge, and joy? Yeah. Yeah?
1: Yeah, insofar as.
3: Or is, it, is joy opposed to happiness and knowledge opposed to book learning or wisdom opposed to uh, prosperity of business and how to do things well?
1: Well, it's certainly not not heavenly wisdom or heavenly knowledge or heavenly joy. It's joy, knowledge, and wisdom that are under the sun.
3: Oh. Then why is it opposed to the sinner? He said the, to the one who pleases him, but to the sinner.
1: Right. Different. In the first place, are those who please God also sinners? Yeah. Solomon knows that. So there's a little bit of irony, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, just simply in how he says it, the designation between the two. But ultimately, why he brings the two out those who please God and the sinners, is look. Look around you. The wicked, are they sinful? Absolutely. The wicked, do they prosper? Absolutely. The sinful and the wicked prosper? Apparently, they've pleased God. Who suffers, according to these verses? Sinners. I'm suffering. Therefore, I must be a sinner. The people up on the hills must be God-pleasing.
2: Right.
1: He gives them knowledge and wisdom and joy. He gives me sorrow and confusion and frustration. And then instead of saying this is all great, Solomon says this is also vanity and striving after the wind. So again, I think Solomon's stating that this is how it is, generally. Those who, God pleases, those who please God prosper, and those who are sinners uh, suffer and end up serving the rich and instead of being okay with this Solomon denounces it he says it's vanity it's part of what's wrong with the world
6: it's me again I, I'm i sorry friends um, what if and I hesitate to ask this I really do but, it's a, but I don't <laughs> Dale says I don't but oh Jim said that Oh my this also I saw is from the hand of God. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner. Could that possibly be a precursor to Christ, but to the one who pleases him and to the sinner? I mean, it just occurs to me that...
1: with With the special revelation of Christ, you can read these verses in light of him, but now you're doing your theology under the S-O-N, not under the S-U-N. And Solomon's M-O is not to do theology, at least heretofore, in light of Christ, in light of the sun, but in light of reason, what you see with your eye, and uh, the S-U-N, that sun. Um. Again, you know, the problem problem with reading this in like the old 1950s devotional sort of way of be a God-pleasing person and you'll prosper and sinners will get bad things. The problem with reading it that way is what? Solomon calls it vanity. So you can't say this is good and God-pleasing in the way it is. And then read that line where Solomon says it's all vanity. You'd have to erase that. Yes, Carrie.
3: Um, as we're talking about it, and maybe you've already said this, but I'm just, um, what, I'm, what I'm reading into this is that both the wisdom, knowledge, happiness, and the storing up of stuff are vanity.
1: Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. So that even the one who pleases God and gets all this stuff, wisdom, knowledge, joy, add to it the other toils, right? In the end, all those toils are vanity, and life is vanity. The all is vanity. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, Dale's back. Uh, uh,
5: Let me see if I can... I I, I just want to try and kind of summarize the thought that I I, I thought I got from you, and that is the idea that someone pleases God... I don't know that we necessarily need to read into that that he did all kinds of good stuff. Right. Right. It's just well, it pleased God to give this to him. Exactly. It's more it's not so much that he, oh, he's such a God-pleasing person. It's more like God in his good pleasure just decided to give him that. I mean, yeah, he's a Mexican drug lord and he has he drives a fancy car. I guess God decided that's what He would do. It pleased God to do that. Exactly. Is that? I mean, that's sort of the that's idea exactly, I'm getting. From yeah, you're it.
1: clarifying exactly what I'm, my sentiment, exactly sure. what I'm trying to say. Yeah,
3: thank yes.
4: you. <laughs> okay. Um, well, isn't this? We struggle with this because deep down we're all hedonists.
1: Yeah, deep, deep down we are hedonists. I, I would agree with that statement. Although I would say that Solomon's pursuit of pleasure is different than hedonism, and he means to distinguish it from hedonism, as we saw in that section on pleasure. He said, I think at least twice, something to the effect of, and yet wisdom remained with me. Okay, so he is approaching pleasure with wisdom, whereas American you know kids don't approach pleasure with any wisdom, <laughs> right? Here is liquor. Let's pursue pleasure and let's pursue it without wisdom. It's going to go great for a little while and then it's going to go really, really poorly. And hedonism is that way. Hedonism just says, me, mine, consequences be damned. And uh, Solomon, I think, sees that level of hedonism as below what he's trying to do, below his experiment, which is to pursue pleasure with wisdom, that is, with boundary within reason. You drink to receive the highest amount of pleasure, and then you stop and have a little water. <laughs> yeah, how many wives, right? Right, that's, the, that's in the section on the pursuit of greatness. What? 700 wives, 300 <laughs> concubines? Greatness. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's within his, when he's accumulating all the stuff. You know, buildings and wealth and monuments and, and society and civilization. What comes along with that? Women. Yeah, he's going to build himself that monument too. And in the end, he finds that unfulfilling. No jokes back there. <laughs> Let me ask you a simple question. What happens to the drug lord when he dies? <laughs> and what happens to the guy that does good good work for the Lord? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, again, it's a little difficult to deal in abstracts, but Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I think that that's really sort of, again, speaking in general and broad terms, uh, to be the way we look at it. So that the rich drug lord who has everything but has it all on the basis of wickedness and corruption. Ultimately, the scales of uh, injustice that we see, while Lazarus, the righteous one, suffers and has dogs licking his wounds, that scale gets balanced at death. And in fact, that scale really favors Lazarus, where you'd walk out of that parable saying, I would rather be a poor Christian than a rich drug lord. I would rather be a poor Christian than an unbelieving president of the United States. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? Did I answer your simple question? It wasn't very simple, Jack. I
3: believe
7: that when the mornings when we pray the morning prayer you know, at the small catechism and it says that we're praying that keep us away from temptation and may our doings please you um i believe that the role of god in our lives is really he is in total control and that is not because our doing please he pleases him is how he protects us from, uh, it's like he's taking care of us, and we are going, you know, off of our way and keep sinning. But that specific uh, uh, sentence that's saying that our doing may pleases him is because of his faithfulness and his role in our Lives that keep us away from—I mean, to to keep us in in Him, in under His his control. And I don't know. Yeah. Not us. What we do.
1: Right. Yeah. When we pray that all our doings in life may be pleasing to You, Mm -hmm. uh, implied in that prayer is that if left unto myself and my own devices, what I do won't be pleasing. Therefore, I'm praying that you would bring me in conformity to your will. Right. And all of that, all of that uh, Luther's morning prayer is, of course, in the light of the SON, the revelation of, of Christ. And under Christ, we have no problem receiving all good things as coming from the Father. We're encouraged to believe that everything he gives us is a blessing, and we're to enjoy it insofar as, as he permits. And that he's giving us even greater things in his son, Jesus. That's just not the way that Ecclesiastes is wanting us to do theology right now. So that without the knowledge of Jesus, without the knowledge of God as Father, without the knowledge that all his gifts are good, what are you left with? Now sort it out. And that's where Ecclesiastes is coming from. When you sort it out, God appears to be unjust. He appears to be fickle. To believe without the revelation of Jesus that God is just, well, to believe that God is just with the revelation of Jesus is an article of faith. That is, it is something that has to be believed, and it is something that has to be brought to fruition at the great judgment, which is where, what Solomon's going to repeatedly bring up. Without that, just left to our reason and our senses, we would conclude that God is not just. And that is vanity. That is meaninglessness. And it makes trying to live justly meaninglessness. And it erodes and undercuts everything and leaves you in the black abyss. Why be wise or foolish? They both die. Why be virtuous and just when you don't prosper any more than the wicked and unjust? Right. That's the meaninglessness. That's the futility.
8: Um, my struggle with this is I think it's so difficult. You, you live your life and um, thinking that this life is so important, and Ecclesiastes reminds you how small your life really is. And Intellectually, we can't understand this, but from God's perspective, when you're talking about weighing the scales, our time on earth here is so tiny and small in relationship to the afterlife, being in direct relationship with God in heaven, but We still are here now, and it's a constant struggle to, based on all this in Ecclesiastes, how do we live our life? Because we're here, and we need to live it. We can't just throw up our hands and say, "Okay, I'm just going to wait till I die, because everything's meaningless here. So that's my question. How do we live our lives based on what we've learned here?
1: And there is no no satisfying one-line sort of answer that I can give you to that other than what Christ does, and one way of saying it, is he brings us, remember what Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Even this old, vain life that you're living, he is making new. Now, that's why I say it can't be a one-line thing, because it's actually as deep as the whole of your experience in life. In fact, it's deep as creation itself and goes beyond it. But, one thing that I've pointed out before is in the futility of cycles. The futility of generation after generation after generation after generation. Enlightened by Christ and by the gospel, we are taught when we see that cycle not to see only meaningless. We see meaninglessness when we put on our under-the-sunglasses. When we put on our under-the-S-O-N glasses, What we see is a God who is patiently waiting for the fullness of the elect to come in. In other words, the cycles have an end, the cycles have a point, the cycles have a purpose. God is patiently waiting, not wanting any to perish, but all to repent and come to everlasting life. Um, In the same way that Solomon points out the pointlessness of the circuitry of the wind blowing here and there and everywhere, Jesus points out that you don't know where the wind comes from or where it goes, And he says, so also is the Holy Spirit. But you know he is working. So when you consider the wind and the circuitry and the pointlessness of the wind, stop and reflect on the fact that the Spirit is moving and going about his busy circuitry and business and for point and purpose. In the endless cycle of the sun rising and falling and rising and falling and rising and falling and then you die... Now we know Christ is the one who has come under the sun, who has made himself one with creation by his incarnation. And in his dying and rising, we see all creation now proclaim that. So under the light of the S-O-N, now we see the days that every day the sun itself is preaching to us Jesus. As the sun sets, we recall his death. As the sun rises, his resurrection. Every day. The week itself is remade, so that the eighth day is the day of Christ's resurrection. It's our Sunday. It's the last day and the first day. It's the eternal day. We look also then at the um, cycles of the seasons. Um, in places other than California, they have four of them. <laughs> and in these seasons, there's a, there's a dying, a fall, an aging and decay, and a, and a winter, a death. It comes back around to spring, to life, to resurrection, and to summer joy. Okay, So that the year itself proclaims Jesus, His death and His resurrection, over and over. Now you don't get any of this unless you get Christ and you get that He is making all things new. Then insofar as the Spirit enables you to begin to see all things new, what you see are two worlds colliding. You see, the old world, and the key to be a good, good theologian after uh, Solomon is to be able to be so brutally honest about that and not sugarcoat it, what that old world is and what its limitations are, and to not get sucked into thinking it's other. And at the same time, then, in the fullness of the revelation of Christ, to begin to see ever more how the new world, the new heavens and the new earth, The new creation is breaking into the old, such that Paul will even say about you, what matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's what Jesus is talking about when he says that in order to see the kingdom of heaven, what on earth is he talking about? To see this new world breaking into the old, to enter this new world breaking into the old, you must be born Again, because if you try to see it with your fleshly eyes, like Ecclesiastes, you won't see it. You must be born again, given new eyes through which to perceive it. You yourself must be made new. Then you will begin to see the new heavens and the new earth already breaking in, already budding, already destroying this old world's order. One of the key moments is, of course, the incarnation. But one of the key and definitive moments is the resurrection. Because this old world and and Ecclesiastes' whole theology is ruled by death. Because it's the norm and it's the standard and it's the thing that no one can overcome. It's the greatest power known to man. That's why our governments are all based on death. What happens if you get out of line? Death. Death. There's varying degrees of that death. You know, you get a ticket, you got to pay a fine, you go to prison, ultimately you push hard enough and death. It's the power of nation against nation. It's ultimately the ultimate power we have over one another, death. That is the power of the world and it is the foundation upon which all civilization, all fallen civilization has been built. It's not just a culture of death, it's a world of death. Which is why Easter is so definitive. Because now, all of a sudden, death has lost its grip. Death that had full control, all of a sudden, one man has slipped through its fingers. And there are suddenly questions and rumors that maybe death isn't as powerful as we thought. Maybe if this one man has defeated death, he knows the way that we also will defeat death. So deeply do his closest disciples come to realize this and believe in this, that when the sword is put to their neck and they say, here is our power. We will put you to death unless you be silent and end this lie. They realize the power of death could not defeat Jesus and will not defeat them. And in the ultimate act of weakness, Being put to death, they defeat death by being faithful to Jesus. You see, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that Jesus is doing in his resurrection. He is overturning the power of death itself, overturning and inciting out this whole world. And he invites you to live with him and to realize that they can take your life, but they don't take your life. And they can put your body in the grave, but I will raise your body from the grave. And death no longer is your master. I am your master. And therefore, do not be afraid. You will have tribulation in the world, but I have overcome the world. So we live as citizens then in his kingdom and as free men who are not afraid of death, who are not afraid of that power. At least when we're in our right mind. And you see then the dignity that God, becoming man, has done for the human race. Because we are no longer mortals. Uh-oh. We are no longer mortals. We are immortal. We are a new human race. Jesus is the first fruits and our leaders. And we are a race of immortal men Men who have and will conquer death, and men who will live with God for all eternity as ones who have conquered sin, death, and the devil. And there's no greater blessing or privilege than that. When it's all said and done, we'll sing songs about these days and not be ashamed. The Lord be with you.
0: So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pyrochristian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pyrochristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ by vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.